I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm Brandon Leday. And we love to watch. We love to watch says, May our minds be stronger tomorrow. May, May our, our minds be stronger, stronger tomorrow. tomorrow. There's magic and wonders and mysteries in store. A hero whose mission is to learn and explore. He's daring and caring and oh so much more. It's Brixby Bear. He travels the skies and the stars through the night. He battles on Snatcher with all of his might. He's strong, never wrong, cause he always does right. It's Brixby Bear. And even when trouble is just around the bend, he'll keep us so safe, cause he's always our friend. The bear who is there through the thickest and thin, it's Brixby Bear. It's Brixby Bear, it's Brixby Bear, it's Brixby This is this feels so good. We we usually have you know a two or three year gap in Brandon appearances. We're having him back pretty quickly on that skit. Well, no, technically we're not. I don't know when the last time Brandon was on our show. I forgot to check the tapes. But uh, last time, Peter, as you remember, we were on Brandon's show, Swamp Flex, <laughs> Swamp Flex, um, and we did release it on our feed. But yeah, we are having him back on our show. So that we don't have to play any of this who's the host nonsense, Brandon. <laughs> We're the fucking hosts. It's called establishing dominance. This is uh, yeah. far preferable to um, his second way of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a podcast piss play. Um. <laughs> this is also, for eagle-eared listeners, the first episode that we've recorded in 2021. One of these th- great things about being so far ahead of recording it's still january of 2021 Uh, you're hearing this in mid-march uh but yeah we've we've formally crossed over into the new year uh and we took a little christmas break um and now we're back to let's uh to to have a couple drinky tuesdays and talk to your buddies about dumbass movies Um, yeah we're getting back to our normal mentally healthy physically unhealthy (laughs) ritual yeah, we're going to start doing two episodes a week, and pretty soon, when you listen to an episode, we recorded eight years ago. <laughs> I do like the dissonance of y'all trying to guess what the world might be like when the episode is released. It's always a tentative, like, <laughs> I don't shit. know what hell planet you're living on. This one's pretty bad. Hopefully I, it's a little up, better. We For a while, we were like four in. or five months we had and yeah we had to put disclaimers on episodes because what we ta- like yeah what we talked about in the episode was affected by real world events but yeah where we love to watch for a movie podcast we pick a theme we do movies over the course around that month or something around that theme and if we remember we compare and our contrast and we're in our second week of who needs a hug month and this uh we're actually going to be talking about the movie today that kind of was the impetus for why this month exists but also just recognizing, like, I know 
we're if you're listening right now, you're two and a half months removed from 2020. Hopefully it gets better. But the 2020, I mean, not to sound like I'm about to sell you a fucking new wireless plan or something, (laughs) was an unprecedented year that was tough for a lot of people. And I found myself um, more than usual returning to movies or TV shows or music or books that, you know, try to uh, inspire a semblance of, of warmth and joy. I think, you know, when you're dealing with a crisis, a normal thing to do is to, like, uh, not to, to A, accurately uh, understand what the crisis is and how to handle it and how to help people during it, uh, but also to kind of take stock of. Uh, I always feel a little weird calling them silver linings because, like, there's, you know, when people are dying, in this case, there's not, like, silver linings, but there's things that you can take to how you're approaching your own life, that you can learn lessons and uh, from the worst of things. And and just one way that I reacted to that was to kind of um, to go back to art that made me feel a certain way to feel a little bit more hopeful for the sake of humanity or the where humanity's going, it made sense to kind of do a month around those movies, even if we were so far scheduled out for a month. The earliest that we had on the docket was March of 2021. I, I still feel like talking about movies that are truly, I don't think, uh, sappy or some sort of other dismissive term that you could use for them. I think they are, uh, to use uh, the famous MTV show, they start getting real. <laughs> um, that kind of came about by um, it, early in the pandemic. I wasn't feeling good and it wasn't COVID, but, you know, I'm sick. A lot of things are going on. And I, I wanted something uh, warm to return for. And the movie that we're about to talk about today, Brigsby Bear, was the first thing that I thought of. And it did uh, – I think I watched it twice when I was, like, sick for a week. And it uh, – and other movies of that ilk. And it did make me feel better. It is a movie that truly makes me feel both better and hopeful. And so it made sense for this to – you know, talk talk about Field of Dreams and a very iconic example of like a movie that uh, makes you joyful, but also makes you feel like you need a hug at the end of it. And, but to make this our second episode of the month and our guest today, uh, I think all three of us, since this movie came out, we have been very vocal defenders of it or defenders, offenders, evan- evangelical about it. <laughs> uh, and so, so why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to our audience, and then also just share why this was the movie that you really wanted to talk about. Well, my name is Brandon. I run a podcast, a movie blog, and a zine in New Orleans called Swamp Flicks with three or four of my friends um, on rotation. (laughs) It's six people total, but not everyone's contributing all the time. Um, And we're very much like this show where we pick different themes and then recommend films to each other based on that theme. It's just more by episode than it is by month. I've been on the show plenty of times. I don't even know how much of an intro you need at this point. I think the last time I was on was like Summer of Lovecraft 2019. So it wasn't that long ago. Um, it was that long? We didn't, We haven't had you on in 2020? No. Besides the uh, Black Christmas crossover, I think that was the oh, last weird. time. Peter, we're, why are we so bad at this? Um... I do most of the bookings, we so you can just out. say that the person who does our bookings is <laughs> You're bad. good, bad, but you're not evil. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, we can do bad all by ourselves. It's true. Yeah. Uh, the, the reason, though, like, Brixby Bear jumped out at me, besides it just being a movie I really love, um, and I'm just happy to see it on that list of options, <laughs> 
is kind of in the opposite direction of what you were saying, like it being like comfort food in COVID times. I think that's true. But it also is a movie that like seems so specific to quarantine and living alone <laughs> yeah. and like only having the obscure pop media that you care about to keep you company um, and just searching in the world for other people who care about that like <laughs> obscure bullshit um, alongside you. Uh, it just seemed like a very good movie to revisit in the context of the ongoing hell we're living through every day. Yeah, I think that's right. And actually, I will say, uh, rewatching it this time, because I initially watched it in like February and March, right, of 2020. So I think it was before like how long. I mean, I was still like, well, I'm going to make that concert in July, right? That's not going to be a problem. Like, I, I wasn't fully understanding uh, how, and I don't think many people were, how long uh, this was going to be and, and how many, how bad it was going to get. You know, this movie's talked about by the creators, and we'll get into that in a second, is like, almost a retelling of their friendship and how they came from, you know, a very conservative Christian background and became friends and like got really excited at making movies. And that's always been a very uh, present part of this movie. I think it's just been overshadowed by the, at least for me as a, as a viewer, the, the trauma portion and the way like people react to trauma in a very like narcissistic way. And that's kind of been the overshadowing part of this movie. I agree with you though, Brandon, this time watching it, I really was like, Oh, this is also a little bit about our shows, like our podcast in that we literally <laughs> sit in our basements. Um, in my case, literally, and like broadcast our love of things to people and have, you know, made a lot of connections and friends um, in the, you know, in the real world, uh, finding like-minded individuals that fucking, you know, love um, an approach to talking about movies, but also a lot of like specific uh, movies. I mean, hell, Peter and I became friends and started this thing over a video game that we love <laughs> so much. So there, uh, there's a unique form of secondhand embarrassment at the beginning of this movie, watching the main character podcast and web blog uh, <laughs> about this show that no one else is watching. Like that hit real close to home in a very funny and uncomfortable way. Uh, it would be weird, though, if you found out that all your listeners were your mom. <laughs> I assume most of them are Ru Russian bots, but um, my mom would probably be a step up in that case. <laughs> I, I, I didn't realize until we start I was, you know, starting the movie how appropriate it was. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um because at the time it was just like this extremely comforting movie where like you're the only anxiety is you expecting the movie to uh be cruel and then the movie refuses to be cruel. Um and in this way it kind of reminds me of a perfect love song. Um where a lot of movies are um, that that we like to watch give you an intense experience, but you don't necessarily want to be like, yeah, like let's let's hit it again. Um, this is <laughs> yeah. one of the movies where uh, it's like a perfect love song, where like you're like when it's over, you're like a perfect pop song, and you're, when it's over, you're like, yeah, I want to hear that Carly Rae Jepsen song again. It made me feel good the first time. Let's see if the chemicals hit again. Um, and uh, that's why I've seen the movie. Like, yeah. A handful of times, probably less than both of you guys, um, because as soon as I saw it, I was like, I was like, it, it was reprogrammed in my brain as like, that gives you a dopamine hit. Uh, this will feel really good. You just put in the 97 minutes or whatever, and, and this will feel good. 
Well, and this is like when it comes to Letterbox. Uh, if you have a pro account, it you know you can you can see anytime you've ever logged a movie. So from from that perspective, this is my most logged movie, tied with a couple of kids' movies that I've seen many many times. Um, so this is really the only one that's in that like group of your ten most watched movies since that you've logged on Letterbox. I think that's somewhat telling. And then also, Peter, I think we both surprised each other a little bit. This ended up being, uh, in a very tough year, my number one movie of our Best of 2017 episode. And it was a year that it constantly juggled between that, your name, and Get Out. But ultimately, like, when I when I was looking at the year and thought, like, what is a favorite movie of the year but something that uh, you could watch and then it gets over and you're like, I could I could hit play on that again. <laughs> like, that, that'd be fine. I have no problem watching that again. And so it ultimately made my number one. And Peter, I think it was like your number two or three. Uh, yeah, it was it was definitely in the in the top five, probably top three. Yeah, like it, it was a it was a movie that will stick with me for a very long time. And it clearly did. If um, when we were talking about doing this month, I was like, be really comforting right now i could use yeah. that right now <laughs> yeah definitely some of this is that like we get to watch these movies again which is which is okay uh which is okay too and i think you know in our in our kind of film our online film group that all of us met in and that you know we still have a presence in i think that this is kind of the one area of the internet or the only one that i've seen that um has a lot of vocal uh vocal e- uh, evangelical people about this movie it feels like a movie that came out it got relatively well received by critics and then disappeared for the most part uh, off the face of the earth and um i've i don't think i've met someone outside of the dissolve that has heard of this movie um i mean i mentioned that we were doing an episode to my wife who watched it with me when it came out three years ago and was not familiar with the movie. So <laughs> even as I described it, she wasn't quite sure what I was talking about. So it, it is a movie that seems to exist uh, much like Brigsby Bear, only for a small amount of people uh, living in their, in, in their basements. It, what's really weird to me is like how all Lonely Island productions have that kind of like yeah, cult cachet. Yeah. Even though they should be like the most popular <laughs> comedies on the planet, and kind of over time they like gather more people watch them, but like it, it's like they're somewhat famous movies among like comedy nerd people. But yeah, as soon as you leave your internet dungeon and go out in the world and talk to like a normal um, person with a suntan, uh, they're <laughs> they're like, "What the fuck are you babbling about?" Um, yeah, which does have a fun parallel in the movie, but it's it's just kind of amazing that like Lonely Island classics don't all have like a popular fan base instantly. Do they any all of them flop. have like a successful bot? It, it's kind of crazy how people that the entire world was talking about, like people know who Lonely Island is, they know who Andy Sandberg is. Like anyone can recite Lazy Sunday or Dick in the Box to you, and it's like what they made a movie called Pop Star. Like I don't know if it's marketing. You don't know. I don't know what it is that has turned everyone away from all of the amazing things they uh, they've been putting out. And also, this is also a Lord Miller production. <laughs> like, yeah, how, how did this movie just disappear? Yeah, the, I, I, Kyle Mooney um, has friends in high places. Um, he uh, only so high. <laughs> he buddied up with he buddied up with um, some of the biggest comedy voices of the past fifteen years. And he pulled this, like, he helped pull this thing together. 
um, which is pretty goddamn impressive considering like Kyle Mooney is somebody who he's like a comedian's comedian. And I don't use yeah. that as like an elitist thing. I use that in the sense of like he's a he's a comedian who you show his his uh, YouTube shorts or whatever to somebody and there's like a pretty good chance unless they're like a comedy fan. They're just gonna be like, I'm uncomfortable. Please turn this off. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of crazy that he ended up on Saturday Night Live, which it was about the time I finally um, tuned out of watching Saturday Night Live. Uh, somewhere around the time Trump appeared as a host, uh, I stopped. I stopped uh, checking in, but um, weird you know, I yeah, yeah, weird coincidence. I agree, <laughs> but uh, it's it's kind of insane that him and Bex Bennett, who's also in this movie. Um, have like kind of thrived there and even a lot of their stuff that started as like, okay, you guys write the 1155 sketch or the 1255 sketch or whatever has pulled more and more mainstream, which I, I think just shows like how mainstream like um, anti-comedy or a lot of that stuff has become. And, you know, anytime you're on Vine or TikTok, that's all you, that's all you basically see is that sort of, sort of comedy. So I, I definitely think that these people that made stuff like this are a little bit ahead of the game. But Brandon, you actually said it, I think, when the movie came out that like you would love for Lonely Island to, and I, I'm going to ask you to try to pull up words that you said three years ago. That we oh shit! About. <laughs> but I think you said like if 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 that kind of like edgy comedy the natural progression for like edgy comedy or tim and eric comedy is to go to abject sincerity or something like that that like um comedy will be in a better state overall yeah i think peter already touched on that a little bit as you like are kind of on edge waiting for this movie to be cruel and condescending and ironic and like pointing and laughing at this character and it never happens i think it's like a benefit of people around our age becoming like the makers of art like yeah you know on a surface level it's it's just kind of nice because they have the same era of nostalgia and a lot of the iconography from this movie is like calling back to the kind of toys and cartoons that were on tv when we were kids but also yeah that sincerity and that like empathy being the go-to here feels very new and fresh you know even even opposed to the tim and eric aesthetic which is funny but uh very much ironic and tongue-in-cheek uh, poisonously so sometimes and i, I gl- i'm glad that he's um in recent years politicized that and gone for like uh targets of evil bite to it more a little more satirical as opposed to yeah he's punching abstract. up yeah, yeah where sometimes it felt like he was just laughing at weirdos exactly uh this this movie's not here to cosplay. laugh at the weirdo it's it's <laughs> like uh more about how we've all become isolated weirdos and how beautiful it is when we can like find each other and create things together despite like our severe social anxiety across a generation even the fact that the kid was wearing there's a there's a character in the movie uh, who even though he was wearing a star trek shirt the fact that he's like a handsome 17 to 19 year old i don't know um that was like having a party and like had a lot of friends and was popular i was like movies have coded me to think that this character is an asshole and like that's that is the empathy yeah. machine of this of, of, uh, that runs this movie that like it knows that you're going to have um a set of perceptions and it wants to uh quash those because once we've all quashed them together we can go to like much higher places than we would have otherwise right like the fact that um the fact like i was expecting a- another eighth grade 
but it's not that at all, right? Um, it, 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 part, some of it has to do with Kyle Mooney's character, James, but like uh, a lot of it, I want to a lot of it I want to stay with like just like the script level and the director level choice to like be kind and empathetic with characters and take moments that are very fragile and very delicate and play them like yeah those guys are probably bullying you but I'm your friend and we're at a party together so why don't we talk about this and then James is like yeah okay we're friends brings me beer friends they make him such a good character. They make Kyle Mooney's character so good that, like, he is not really, like, he doesn't even have the the frame of reference to understand, like, that level of peer group bullying. So he is actually a genuinely confident person in, like, who he is and what he wants, even if it is alien to everything else. And I think when he starts forming real connections, it's it's not... It's it's coming from a place of someone who, uh, it, weirdly enough, has a huge amount of confidence in uh, in himself, which I think is a, a little bit like I don't want to say rare or something like that, but it is it, it's a little bit that that idea of the the kidnapped person in a box. Like I don't think you usually think of it from that perspective that they could be like that confident in themselves, just because the world is so foreign to them. That even like that level of bullying is a is a little bit foreign, but yeah, I mean, even I, his, I, his fucking kidnapper parents were compassionate and kind to him. Yeah, like, this movie is nothing if not fucking complicated about all of that, right? Like, uh, and we'll get into that more. When could we get could into you the name movie. a single villain, really? Um, no, because even like Bex Bennett. I mean, I guess you could name I mean, his parent, the people that kidnapped a baby. Are I the mean, closest, but they but they made they a pretty big mistake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, even and even a, even the cops, like one cop, is purely on a sort of like um, social worker level helping him out. Um, it feels like he's almost not a cop; he's a social worker that was assigned to his case. Um, and yeah. then another cop is um, seems like he's going to be the hard ass who's going to hold him to you know real strict confines, but instead he's just like. Eventually, he's like charmed by James, and he's like, "I under because I understand your background. I know that you don't know this is wrong, and I know that you didn't do these things. You didn't build a bomb for malicious reasons." Um, yeah, I'm, I actually like it's it's a small part of the movie. I want to talk a little bit about that uh, Bex Bennett's character's arc because I actually think he starts as one of the people who uh acknowledges that like you know quote unquote they did a number on you but still judges him for his actions because he's a cop who needs to protect people regardless of whether you know he was kept in an underground bunker for 25 years but then the power of the brixby bear adventure brings him over i know it's 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 a very uh interesting uh interesting arc but i also think you know getting back to a little bit of the way this this movie is i i was always waiting for the other shoe to drop and honestly the explosion part is the part where i was like fuck is everyone gonna turn on him and it, it starts to feel like that's happening but no they're just they're people that care about him that got mad because he did something that was shitty but they are they also em- empathize that like he apologized he didn't mean anything by it he's still learning and so it, I, I love that it never dips into cruelty or looking down on any of its characters or making someone a, a cartoon villain. And I, I also wonder though, I, if I had like seen this when I was twenty two, 
I wonder if I would not have connected with it, you know, Brandon, to your point. This really was made with, like, I want to talk a little bit about, like, the videos that they're parroting. Because I had sets of videos that I guarantee no one's heard of and that now only come up occasionally on, like, fucking everything is terrible mixes and stuff (laughs) like that. Where it's like, hey, I remember having ten of those weird Christian puppet series that like that uh no one's ever heard of before and no one would unless you were in like a weird specific market that your parents just happened to buy these at a you were in a specific age group a specific geography and a specific uh you know whatever religious demographic i i think this movie is really like aiming for that like 30 to the, the kind of millennial age uh because I I think I would have wanted something a little bit meaner and cynical at 22. And I feel bad saying that because it would have been a lesser movie. I don't think you need as much reminder at at age 22 that, like, people can be good as you realize you've always needed as you grow older. It's probably something worth talking about is who I was when I was 22. Because, like, I I completely agree with you. You kind of teed me up here because... When I was 20 to 22, I was deeply ironic, but also deeply unhappy. And mm-hmm. like, I couldn't accept joy at face value. Uh, I judged people very much based on like what their interests were as opposed to like who they were as a person. Though I was always kind of better than that at some, than some of my friends. Like, um, I had yeah. friends of mine who just seemed happier because they were just more... Uh, they accepted things more at face value. And it's not that they were dumber than me. There were Many of them were much, much smarter than me. I'm not a very smart person. Um, it's that they, they accepted things for what they were and accepted wholesomeness and sweetness in their life. And I just was... It took me my early couple years of my 20s to shake off this, um, this, this, this shackle to coolness. Um, that ironic detachment was what, what was going to make me cool and make me interesting. And then I feel like I, I became a much better person and I formed more lasting and beautiful relationships like after college. Um, because once I got out of college and I started working and started working with all these like, it wasn't specifically because of that, but it was largely because I started working with way different people and started meeting way different people and like trying to reconfigure my brain to be like, this isn't, these aren't like the cool kids that I like was trying to, you know, not only, um, not only become one of, but like become the king of the cool kids and become this gatekeeper guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was no longer that it was, uh, it was just people and people that were being sweet and kind. And like towards the end of college, my depression issues and my anxiety issues were worse than they ever were. And like during this like sort of growth period and like my 22 to 26 I had to let go of a lot of stuff that was at the time like I didn't realize it was a crutch but like at the time like I I was I was addicted to like irony and being jaded and being just like a detached asshole and it wasn't making me happier it wasn't making me a better person it wasn't making me contribute anything more to the world I wasn't bringing more happiness into the world in that as that person and like i i saw that around i don't know yeah exactly i think 22 is probably the right age i saw that around 23 24 and started to make moves to make myself like a better person and start like treating people with more respect just because they were sometimes just because they were different than me because they had something to share with me from who they who had they had become and like 
I feel like I've been talking for forever, but like, I feel like this is the kind of movie that exhibits who I am now, but like, I would have pointed at and called like treacly cheesy bullshit at 22. And I'm like, it's it's oddly enough a movie that I can like exhibit my own personal growth through this lens. And like, that's why the movie means so, so much to me, because it's, it's a movie that's like, it just disposes with all this like pretentious bullshit that you just just don't need. Like you can just be a person. You don't need to be um, a cool person. <laughs> you can just be a human being. And that's something I think is like a topic of a lot of like modern teen movies. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of like, I don't know, Never Have I Ever on Netflix or mm-hmm. Blockers. Um, yeah. The Edge of Seventeen, Spontaneous. Like, there's all these like teen movies where all these divides that we had, you know, were were like, you know, the music you like or the way you dress used to define who you were and you decided that was cool and everyone else could fuck off. Like <laughs> characters who act like that now in teen media, like those are people that need to grow and learn. And yeah. then like the jocks are sweethearts um, and people who are not people are just like open hearted and willing to like empathize with each other is the goal. And, um, I, I I don't know. I I don't know if that's like a fantasy version of like how the kids are now, but I always like, I don't think so. I think think they might've learned from our mistakes. Maybe (laughs) I think they're better than us. I heard it really well explained once that it's, it's, it's important to remember that like millennials were raised by boomers, which is us. And, like, Gen Z has been raised by uh, Gen X, uh, which does, like, it continues to, like, kind of soften that, like, you know, Gen X was the kind of, like, sensitive feeling generation of, like, you know, the people that were teenagers in the 90s and stuff like that. And, you know, it's not like uh, I don't want to just put everything under generations, but even though I think, uh, you know, the millennial generation has improved quite a bit from where where we were before like our parents were still boomers and there's a lot of shitty stuff that came from that even if they were in theoretically better than than their parents and yeah i like i do think that's true and i i i know exactly what you're talking about like it is very encouraging that idea of like I, like i don't think you'd make a varsity blues or whatever insert right. whatever example comes into your mind porkies like, like the difference between blockers yeah. and porkies is like a world apart <laughs> well that's why that's this like defining the generational difference is important here is because he's like visiting their world like yeah. he had the experience we had where like you're kind of isolated in your pet obsessions and <laughs> yeah. become like very defensive about this stuff and like kind of hardened to the outside world like fuck you for not getting it um but he gets to visit like a younger generation that's like you know physically younger than him but more emotionally mature and teaches him how to like share and you know build a community and it's like a it's a teen movie with a protagonist our age which is a really funny um cross-cultural cross-generational like um handshake and i don't know i I found that very like striking on rewatch yeah, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. And it's something that like, it's it has such a compassionate hand that even the sort of awkward conflict m- moments, like like his little sister's friend trying to give him a hand job, 
Um, or I guess you know, I don't think trying. I, I think a hand I think job, successfully, not yeah. one. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, just a very quick one. Uh, the the uh, that whole deal and like them giving him acts and stuff. Like the, the the movie is actually fairly well calibrated to all that because he is essentially learning all the rules live. Like he's making yeah. messy mistakes live. Um, gross. I didn't mean that pun. <laughs> um, I, he's he's but like the whole the whole time he's not like learning how to fit in as like uh cool guys don't do this cool guys talk like this cool guys talk like ryan gosling and drive cool he's like it's not that it's that he's learning where other people's limits are what other people's interests are and he's kind of like oh well we we have stuff in common so let's let's like mash there and like i think that's that's actually like a fairly beautiful revelation in the movie that he doesn't learn to be normal he just yeah he just learns how to share who he is with other people which makes yeah. this movie sound like it's a children like it sounds like steven universe or something right like it sounds like it's 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 a a, a like a children's cartoon with a with a good heart and a good mind but instead it's like it's 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 a it's in the, the the auspices of an adult dramedy, um, which I think means that it reaches a different audience, and particularly, maybe at twenty four this would have destroyed me and like made me cry a lot. Whereas at twenty eight, I could sort of wistfully reflect on like who the person I I was at the time, or I guess yeah, I probably saw it twenty seven, twenty eight. Um, I could wistfully re- respond to the person that I was um, and see it through that lens, right? Um, so I think, like, the fact you could have gotten a lot of these messages across through, yes, a Steven Universe or something similar, but um, the fact that it is in this context, it means you're going to reach an audience of, frankly, 20-something or 30-something hipsters um, yeah. <laughs> who probably need this lesson a little bit more than a child who has not learned to be ironic and jaded yet. <laughs> well, I yeah. mean, as, as we haven't said what the like, you know, artificial scenario at the center <laughs> of this is yet, but it is like a universal stunted adolescence for anyone who spent too much time alone <laughs> with yes, pop yes. media instead of like actually building social skills and then like being thrust into the world for like high school or college and like, having to navigate those tricky, you know, sexual and social scenarios for the first time. And you're just completely unprepared with those skills. Um, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's both universal and like intensely alienating and like very specific to one person at the same time. Yeah. Cause I wasn't homeschooled or anything, but I wasn't a very small private Catholic grade school of 35 kids. And then I went to actual high school. That was fucking eye opening, not to the same capacity in this movie, but you know, you, you see yourself reflected in the extreme. Um, that was, that was very, I think that's very astute. Like I, I had reached a point with my 35 person class where I found the few nerds who were my friends and, uh, <laughs> we're, we're connected, we're together, um, let's do the same thing every fucking weekend, and then all of a sudden you get to high school and you're like, oh, I have to learn everything now, I didn't, I didn't know anything, I, I did, uh, oh, uh, oh, I can't just quote Arrested Development at someone and they'll be my friend, got it, I have to, like, put work in, cool, okay. 
and it helps like i mean i think why this movie works is that you know james has learned how to communicate with people and to make friends through which we'll, we'll talk about through essentially online message boards on the same topic which is brigsby bear in this case um so he only knows how to relate to people by sharing what he loves which in this case is is brigsby bear the people that he that he's positioned and i would say if we get back to the generational discussion i feel like the generation as a whole is very interested in like sincerity and what people love so like it's an audience that's willing to listen to what he has to say to relate to him on his terms and everyone else of whether it's older people different generations people are, are not ready to relate to him on his own terms and i think that was probably something i want to get into that a little bit further on like some of the parenting aspect stuff in this movie because i do think that that is one of its most interesting things that it kind of talks about is like how do you relate to people in your life especially if it's people that don't come from the same uh background or share the same interest is it is it one of trying to like move them into your interest or is it one that kind of takes their their experience and their interests and the things that they love in a form of 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 sincerity and openness so that you're not you know to use the old um adage like you are getting to know who they are as a person as opposed to waiting for your turn to speak um and uh, the la- the last thing I kind of want to mention, I-, I think we're really starting to tip into just talking about parts of the movie, so we should get there. But I want to get back to something that um, Brandon was talking about earlier and how this movie came to be. Because uh, we're going to be doing pop stars, we kind of alluded to here, in a couple months that's already on the books. One of the things that people talked about a lot at Popstar, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it too, is that it's basically a fictional retelling of the Lonely Island people's friendships over the years, you know, right? I didn't know that this movie is the exact same thing. Kevin Costello and Kyle Mooney, who spent all, who both were hired at Saturday Night Live at the same time, uh, one is a performer and writer, and one is a Costello is just a writer. Like, met in junior high, came from extremely censoring Christian conservative families, and uh, they both wanted to be filmmakers, and they kind of met feeling like they were literally, like, no one... Everyone else was, um, you know, not not didn't know all the same. Like when you really get into like, I guess, like nineties fundamentalist Christian shit. Like they didn't know about the final hour and the coming apocalypse and all the other shit that was going on there. And uh, they weren't really buying into it, but they had trouble relating to anyone. So they like tried to make little short films and also short films that like came from a lot of their upbringing of watching these weird like videos meant for a Christian audience and stuff like that. Um, and I, I had no idea that like, like the two, the two, you know, James and uh, what's the other kid's name in the movie? Spencer. <laughs> Spencer. Yeah. Sorry. James and Spencer like are supposed to be kind of analogs a little bit. I mean, they're both kind of a James in the situation, but they're like meeting and like figuring out each other and having a connection and deciding to do this is like uh, a kind of a fictional retelling of their upbringing and their lifelong friendship. And I, I, I had no idea about that. I find that very like interesting. And once you see that, you see a lot of that DNA in the movie. Oh, you definitely can. 
Um, and I think that's part of the reason the movie is so compassionate is because the creators wanted it to to feel compassionate because the movie wouldn't exist without that. Just makes it sweeter. It's a, it's a big. This movie's a big old onion. I hope I hope uh, at some point we can get more. Um, we can get more movies from this particular group of creators and we can get more of the sort of, uh, more iterations on, um, what it's like to be in their heads. Cause like Kyle Mooney is an interesting dude. Cause like he sort of blew up as like an awkward comedy star, but like, I, I, I can no longer watch his like going to the baseball game and talk, being really awkward with people videos anymore. I, it just it hurts too much like <laughs> this is more my pace but when i was 22 the kyle mooney videos uh of him at the baseball game being like hey how do you, do you feel about this? <laughs> did you watch uh did either of you guys watch uh norm mcdonald norm mcdonald's norm mcdonald's, uh, norm McDonald's uh, short-lived this movie does uh, have like sense. contagious awkwardness like i was McDonald's. talking to my wife when it was over and i was like i just would like to to go to sleep at a good time today. Yeah, it's dope as shit. Dope, getting a good night's sleep dope as shit. Dope as shit. love to sleep. Um, no, I did not see uh, the Norm MacDonald. He, he did Kyle Moody was on Norm, Norm MacDonald? That's where I first heard of him. So, no, it, well, so he had a, he had a Comedy Central, I think it was like 2000, I want to say six or seven. Maybe it was a little, maybe it was like 10. But he had a one season, like, um, sports show. Um, that oh, was essentially. It was essentially weekend update, but only about sports. It was right? his, ne- Which, and Kyle Mooney was supposed to be his nephew. Kyle, yeah, he was supposed to be his nephew, and he was his on the scene reporter. And they sent him to all these like yeah, baseball games and wrestling matches and all these things. And uh, he'd do that like you know what <laughs> that kind of Kyle Mooney thing that he did on Saturday Night Live and a lot of his short videos where he's like, so yeah, who do you think's gonna like uh, win the big bread basket tonight? And they're like. <laughs> <laughs> And he's like, but yeah, the bread basket, yeah, the bread bread basket. Who's gonna who's gonna do that? Like, I, I'm not sure what bread basket means. You know, the whole enchilada, the whole bread basket. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like where he's mixing metaphors and not knowing the right terms, but like just extremely compelling. And I remember watching those over and over, like I because I would TiVo the show and feeling like, unfortunately, more Norm Macdonald Weekend Update was a little bit past its prime. But like anytime this this you know his nephew Kyle was on, I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. So I was so happy to see him on Saturday Night Live, and it's just amazing how, you know, what his kind of his kind of thing he's always been doing is like nephew Kyle was extremely sincere. He was trying to go and relate to people at these games that he knew nothing about, and so this movie felt like such a just a perfect way to use him in a movie <laughs> like and, and i would have gone to see this at the time because i did like his work like i i i am an um embarrassingly a lifelong fan of snl i still watch it and and the reason i like the show is because of that like written at 3 a.m absurdism that yeah. sort of like loose like surreal brain connections that only happen in an environment in an abusive work <laughs> environment where you're not allowed to sleep and you just write insane things. And I, I think a lot of people miss those parts of the show because the political sketches, which are awful and very cynically so written, awful. Yeah. Those, those are the ones that get headlines and basically pay the bills. But Kyle Mooney is like the embodiment of the 3am sketch. And I would have gone to the theater to see him do that awkward, 
shtick that he does in the movie. Like, it's not like he isn't doing the normal thing here. He's doing it. No. What shocked me was that the final, like, triumphant scene in the film made me cry. And if you had told me in 2017 that Kyle Mooney was going to make me cry by doing his normal shtick, I I, would have been very skeptical. (laughs) There's two scenes in this movie that make me ball. Like, it's the theater scene, but also when he escaped, like, if you told me there's a scene where Kyle Mooney... And Andy Sandberg are in a mental institute, and they escape by throwing a TV out of a third-story window. <laughs> um, and and then the the scene right after that would make me. Um, oh, geez, yeah. That that I think really is the catharsis of the movie. Like the movie does it to me too when they're showing the premiere. But holy shit, when everyone in his life is just, we're gonna be here for you in the way that you need. Uh, it's amazing how that can be a, a crying trigger. Yeah, both which, of those tearjerker yeah. moments are just communities like coming together to heal someone. Like what the fuck? That is <laughs> that is not normally the kind of thing that can. I don't know. It's not the easy way to get someone uh, to an emotional state, you know? That's <laughs> Some of that work. is probably, I mean, all of this, this movie did come out in the post-Trump era, not to keep going back to that, but just like people who love each other and are trying to help each other is is definitely a crying trigger for me at this point in my yeah. life. Yeah, and like, honestly, like, even the clo- as close as this movie gets, we said there's no villain in the movie, and we kind of skipped over that, As close, the closest we get is Claire Danes as the psychologist. Oh, her, yeah. But her... The only reason we see her as a villain is because we know that this is the one instance where a delusional uh, a delusional trauma victim uh, actually should, like, throw himself into this obsession. Um, because it's, it seems like it's actually, like, a good way for him to work through his trauma. But, like, he's, like, the one out of a hundred, one out of a thousand where this is a good <laughs> idea. So, like, even, like, I think we probably could have used one more scene with, with Claire Danes to, like, even soften that, that low-key villainy. But she, like, in any, in any charitable read of the movie, you would see Claire Danes as, like, She's trying to help. She was a state-assigned yeah. psychologist, basically. Um, or maybe the family hired her, and she's like, I genuinely need this child to be, like, this, this adult man-child to be healthy uh, and to move on. And, like, in a weird way, this movie feels like a flip side of Step Brothers, where Step Brothers is, like, this, like, beautifully acidic, like, parody of the man-child movie. This is like this beautifully uncynical, wholesome yeah. version uh, that where like they're both extremes on the on the far end of the man child. They're both the, on the coin of man child. Um, sounds like a Dark Souls reference. Um, <laughs> they're both on the coin of of of, of man child, but the, they're they're the the extreme ends of it, right? Like this is that you understand why the Claire Danes character acts that way because you're thinking the same thing, like you only watched these tapes as your only entertainment the first 20-something years of your life, maybe it is bad that you're still only obsessed with this well, one thing well, now she's, that you can have it. She's also right, too, because the the art itself is, um, at least in the subliminal messages it's trying to get across to him, <laughs> it is an evil force, and it is doing bad and limiting his worldview on purpose. Yeah, um, yeah. But and I think I mean I think that's what's so important, right? Like Claire Danes doesn't get that moment where she's loading up the truck and realizing, like, oh, this is we're supporting uh, our 
kidnapped this kidnapped boy or son or brother means something differently than we initially thought and we're pivoting to listen to what that person has to say but like even claire danes is um she's she's trying to do good like she is doing the best she can i think this is a this is a really good the the reason i love this movie so much is that we said there's no clear villains it's because after James gets out, literally everyone he interacts is trying. Like no one is trying to do bad things. A lot of people are fucking up uh, what they should be doing. But whether it's his parents, whether it's Claire Danes, whether it's his sister, whether it's um, the, the even Bex Bennett, they all think they're doing what's best for him. It's just different. Different characters actually approach James on his level and realize what he's saying. Cause James is someone who is, as we said, I, I said confidence, but he's clearly articulating what he needs throughout the movie. And it's, <laughs> it's, 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 um, uh, sister's friends and then his sister. And like, it's slowly people start listening to that. But I also think this movie is a really good example of like good intentions. Doesn't mean a good effect. Good, good intentions are not all that's important because most people think they have good intentions. And I think Claire Danes, even if we keep her as kind of the villain of the movie, I don't think that's an indictment of her being a true evil villain or anything like that. But just as she never actually listened to her patient. And as such, she never her good intentions never had a good impact. Um, and, and that's an important lesson, too, that I think we could all stand to learn, be, especially in a world where people who think they have good intentions or are, are quote unquote good people, as if that's a moniker that can just be adopted and excuse all sorts of behavior, um, are doing like either purposefully or accidental uh, hurtful or damaging um, things. But uh, I think that is a good place. Then you talk more about Claire Danes. And her scenes and everything else. <laughs> you guys want to talk more about uh, Briggs Bear? Sure do. Hell yeah. alternate taglines for Brigsby Bear. Uh, hey, Peter. Sure. Uh, different than the movie The Bear. It's, it's distinctly different. It's different Distinct- than the movie Grizzly. I, you know what? I've only seen one of those three in theaters. I've never seen... I didn't see Grizzly Man in theaters. I didn't see Brigsby Bear in theaters. I didn't see Jack the Bear, the Danny DeVito movie in theaters. I did see the 1989... Uh, I think it's a French movie, but they released it to theaters. The Bear in in theaters. Bad News Bears? Who remembers The Bear? (laughs) (laughs) A movie only I remember. I'm purposefully not saying anything. Just insert me being quiet right here. Am I a ghost? Brandon! (laughs) I accidentally muted myself. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Brandon was unintentionally owning you. It's Uh a 1988 French adventure drama family film. Uh, it's 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 an all bear cast. 
So Brixie Bear is unrelated to Brother Bear, also unrelated to the I bear. did not see that in theaters either. My only, look, the only bear movie I want to see is a 1988 French adventure movie. <laughs> <laughs> to my shame, I did positively review the Disney Country Bears with the animatronic uh, monstrosities. <laughs> I've never even seen that one. It is, it is very funny in the way that um, the, the pause uh, movies that y'all are watching, the like Buddies series... Uh, is you know amusing and horrifying at the same time, and lots don't, of good fart say jokes. We're watching Walken. the series. We watched one movie in 2016 and one in 2020. You know your year long project where you watched everybody's movie. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot like that. <laughs> I was wondering if we we're going to touch on the fact that um there is an Airbud joke in Brigsby Bear. Oh yeah, uh, we 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 can touch on it. Well, it's a mighty. It's like in all of those 90s movies. It's very much a Mighty Ducks. And Mighty Ducks 2 joke, which has the scene where someone takes off their helmet and they're like, a girl? Um, <laughs> uh, someone who's seen the first two Mighty Ducks movies way too many times, but has never seen the third. Is the, is the, is the fake movie Hockey High? Is that what it's called? <laughs> yep, and his name is uh, uh, Coach Bombo. <laughs> So Tim Heidecker is in this movie for approximately I would love to see a seconds. Mighty Ducks remake uh, just a just a shot for shot like a fucking Gus Van Sant psycho, except Tin Height Decker plays the Coach Bombay role. <laughs> yeah, what's the the joke though? Is that like there's nothing in the rule book that says something? I forget what it was. I tuned out because I was just pleased that they got that far. I was like, all right, I'm pleased. <laughs> I need to hear the punchline. <laughs> I'm already laughing. It's something about like hitting someone with a car or something. <laughs> like it's, uh, but Peter, tell us what happens in good old Brigsby Bear. Uh, so we see James is kind of a shut-in. He's uh, in his room watching these- <laughs> Kind of a shut-in. Kind of a shut-in. <laughs> a little bit of a shut-in. <laughs> like he's literally been shut in. You know, I just, it feels a little he's, aggressive he's a not, when you put it that he's way. He's a not allowed out. Yeah. <laughs> so he's a... Um, it's because it's not a voluntary thing. Like, I don't call the, 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 the mother and child from the movie Room shut-ins. Yeah, P.S. I mean, I call them kind of. I know it's. Hold on, I know it's on paper. Shut-ins. They're not. It's apples and oranges, but James does rebound much quicker than anyone in room. (laughs) God, brutal. Um, Said it's apples and oranges. uh, (laughs) Apples and uh, space rocks. Um, So, uh, 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 oh, so James uh, is obsessed with the show Briggs v. Bear, which is sort of an educational children's entertainment uh, program, but it's also sort of like a sci-fi adventure children's thing. So it's like you get a little bit of like space adventure, but also it teaches you how to do fractions. Um, So uh, he's at dinner with his parents one day and he's like him and his dad are clearly obsessed with this program, but his mother is uh, kind of just like she's kind of like. I thought we would have moved on to, like, actual science by now. Um, because he's essentially learning all of his lessons through this context. They got, the yeah, show. they got to solve the Van Smoot. <laughs> yeah. Like, all of his lessons are learned through the context of what Brigsby Bear does. And, like, his obsession seems to be more on the, the bear side and less on the science side. Um, so uh, he's sort of living in this, like, day-to-day rote routine where his parents very much control him. And then you find out um a few minutes in the movie that they're in a geodesic dome bunker (laughs) and that they've been telling this kid his entire life or this adult man his entire life 
that he is uh, that the world is a post-apocalyptic state and the air is poison and that they have to stay in the bunker. Uh, So he's he's doing like small rebellions like he puts on his gas mask to go sit on the roof of the bunker, but he doesn't actually ever like run away. Um, And one day the FBI busts in. You find out these aren't his real parents. These are his uh, these are his abductors. And they were basically running what started off as a um, a desperate act of uh, what sounds like maybe they couldn't have children. Uh, a couple yeah. who couldn't have children. Sounds like that was that was the... well, and a rich couple that couldn't have like because the whole thing is that Mark Hamill's character, the dad, he basically invented Teddy Ruxpin in the in that world. Yes, yes, he 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 like is allowed to leave and go in his car with his gas mask and go like no, but I mean before they still like yeah. he was independently wealthy from inventing a children's toy, like Tiger Terry was, or some bullshit. That was Tiger yes. Terry that is basically Teddy Ruxpin. Yeah. Yes, and he, uh, <clears throat> so he's like Mark Hamill is very much in, in, enamored with this um, whole process, but his his wife is like, I thought at this point we would have an adult son, who you know was was fully educated. Like, um, so this uh, FBI raid happens. He finds out. Well, that- hold on, really quick, not to interrupt, but I don't think we'll get back there. I do. I seeing it this time. I also recognize that I think part of our frustration is that like as he's communicating on the message boards, as you mentioned, because it's all a closed system and they're in a bunker, uh, and that they are the people responding to all of the message board posts and the communication, that anytime the more he's obsessed with Brixby Bear and, and quote-unquote posting on the forums, she has a lot of work to do. Oh, yes. <laughs> it sounds like she's like the stay-at-home mother, but the dad uh, is like leaves to go to work. Um, Which is to make Brigsby Bear, and then she is basically the forum operator that operates uh, all five of his friends. Which <laughs> Brigsby Boy one, Brigsby Boy two, Brigsby Boy two, Brigsby Boy four, Brigsby Boy five. We know all their names. Um. <laughs> so, so yeah, they. It's essentially like a fish out of water comedy uh, about a uh, awkward guy who's obsessed with this thing. Um, who all of a sudden has to mix in with the real world, but he gets returned to his uh, birth family, who he never knew, um, and his um, his birth parents, plus his uh, little sister, who you know wouldn't have been, even been born by the time he was abducted. Right? The family takes him in. They try and be accommodating to his interests, but he's having a lot of trouble, like letting go of this obsession uh in ways that are both hurtful and helpful right like uh helpful in that like his obsession and wanting to share that obsession uh makes him friends um and friends that want to share his vision of completing the brigsby bear saga there's no more tapes now because his father um since he was arrested and he was making the videos um the the sagas will will be left incomplete so he says we have to finish the story, and then he like figures out that there are other movies, and that he can anybody could be a director, basically, in a very funny kind of revelation moment for for the character. Yeah, really quickly to pause there, I think the movie's masterstroke is it. It takes till about twenty minutes into it, like so you you recognize at first, okay, here's a kid in a post apocalyptic waste fan with his family, and then it really is surprising when you you know ten minutes in learn that oh these aren't his parents and this is just a big con essentially to have kind of their own kid that they can raise away from civilization 
But because, as we were talking about earlier, there were so many of these tapes, and it does posit a world where this guy created a, like, Teddy Ruxpin doesn't exist, but it's, you know, instead this, like, fake version for this movie. There's a point where you assume that these Brigsby tapes are real, like, that they (laughs) exist for everyone. And I think the movie's masterstroke is about 25 minutes in, when you realize that, that these Brigsby tapes only exist for him in this very funny scene with um with the cop who the detective is trying to help him he's like uh who's that on your shirt and he points to it and goes it's brigsby and the shirt has a picture of brigsby bear and underneath it it says in letters it's brigsby um, uh, which is a very funny moment but then like even that you don't really like oh maybe this guy's never heard of this show and it's not till uh yeah 20 30 minutes in where they're in the psychologist's office and they finally explain no one's ever heard of Brigsby Bear. It's not just that they never had those tapes. These these tapes were created by your dad, your fake dad, your kidnappers in an abandoned warehouse and made specifically for you, uh, which adds a lot of context to the portions of the tape that we saw that was like, would have this show about defeating evil and solving math problems and other kids stuff, but also would say like, make sure you put all your trash in the yellow bin and the, you know, and the recycling in the blue bin. Only trust your parental unit. Curiosity is an unnatural emotion. Like really just like telling him specifically not to be curious or adventurous while watching adventurous bear um, escapades. So he has his rebellions and like one of his rebellions is like it, it is to trust other people like he's immediately trustful yeah. of other people. And luckily, this is a movie where he doesn't get slapped on the wrist too much for it. Yeah. And that's what's I think so important to the rest of the context, because he is he's not just living in like a world where um, literally everyone who's trying to help him has never experienced what he's experienced, like living his whole life in a bunker with faint parents told the apocalypse has happened and he's got to watch out for gunner foxes and shit like that. But also his entire pop culture world and everything he knows of um has been created specifically for him so he is unable to relate the two ways that you relate to people is like understanding of the world but then also this way that we relate to people which is like a shared uh pop culture um love of or uh, love of art or anything like that all that's been manufactured specifically for him as well um and we find out later in a very funny scene, even even the music's been manufactured for him. Um, <laughs> the Beatlers um, is a band that Mark Hamill was made music with, uh, and that was the music that he got a chance to listen to. So, like, to get back to something we were saying earlier, and we'll, earlier, and we'll talk about a lot. Like, this whole world was created for him, and um, it it's not everyone is trying to help him is coming at it from the angle that he's supposed to recognize these things in the other world without really understanding that literally no one on the planet has ever experienced what he's experienced. Uh, Yes. Yes. Like he is, he's in his bubble. He's in a very specific context and he's trying to share that context with other people. And once he realizes that he can share with other people, like other people start to catch on. Like his friend is his friend, Spencer. Yep. His friend, Spencer uploads it to YouTube, which is something that he didn't even think of. And all of a sudden, like, Brigsby has, like, fans. Um, it starts to become sort of, like, a, a thing that people are really into. Like, ironic or not, they're very excited about this, like, very goofy bear production that's, like, incredibly unique and was filt- uh, built to fit one very fucked up specific purpose. Um, so, 
uh, Kyle Mooney's character, James, he is, um, he goes to a party. Uh, he gets a partial handjob. He, uh, he, uh, starts to make friends with this group and they, uh, they sort of get, are conscripted in his task to, um, make uh make a brings me Bear movie and they're all really excited about it uh a few of them have special skills like spencer has uh digital editing skills and and, and you know just regular film editing skills um so he's helping him on the technical side of things and um the, the but the issue is james also doesn't know what the law is so at one point james uh blows up a bomb um he makes a bomb he makes a bomb for a special effects scene. Yeah, he, he and uh what's it say is he, he doesn't understand why anyone is mad at him. Uh this draws the attention of Park Rangers dash police. Uh he gets arrested, he takes the rap for it because there is his friends. Um and a cop uh essentially says, like, Do you understand? Like, this is incredibly serious. And he he lets him go kind of on parole, and then he starts to hunt for the original cast member. Uh, who is um, uh, who's who's the love interest on the show to Brigsby Bear, but also a um, like a, a love interest to James because James sees himself as Brigsby Bear, He's like someone who goes out on grand adventures and you know saves saves the universe. Um, faces conflict so he's like because he's Brixby bear is sort of his like role model and surrogate um he falls in love with her too um i I like that the uh i like the people who are newcomers to the show latch onto how uncomfortable it is that Brixby bear knew this love interest since she was a young child (laughs) (laughs) and they share like a big triumphant kiss it's like everyone exchanges a glance at that moment like oh this is really uncomfortable we're just gonna let let that go yeah, yeah. I, I do feel – I want to get to that. I kind of – I don't know. Like, I do feel their conversation is sweet while also recognizing there's some weird power dynamics at play. But we we can get into that. Yeah, and um, – but he, but he finds her, right? Like, he finds the one per, the one other person on the show that wasn't his dad, which he did – you know, he found out later was – played twins Ariel and Nina. We don't need to talk about Nina. <laughs> um and uh this character is played by caitlin shale who you'll recognize from like all the mumble gore movies um like vhs and most notably she was the lead in she dies tomorrow recently so there's actually like a couple she dies she's really good in this there's a couple she dies tomorrow cast members in this Um, oh jane adams yeah i didn't think about that yeah um, just kind of funny. Uh, just, just, J- hey, J- if if Jane Adams knows anything, it's how to market a hog. Who saw Hung? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> <HBO> show. <laughs> I watched. I watched the first season. And I definitely would not have had any idea what you were talking about unless you told me. <laughs> That's all I watched too, baby. Hung is only for one season at most, but Jane Adams is the one who's like Tom Jane. You got a huge hog. Let's I'll get be you out there. Him. I forgot. She's his, his his pimp, right? Pimp, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. In the television show Hung about Thomas Jane's huge dick. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Thomas Jane even read past the first ten pages? <laughs> oh, I got a huge dick? Sure. <laughs> it's uh, an HBO show. Do you think sure. They, do you think that they shot scenes in The Expanse where they canonically recognize that his character has a huge hog? Uh, but it was those, those lines were just written, scripted, and filmed just to get 
uh, Tom Jane and the project. I I do think though I didn't like their Arrested Development callbacks where he's just walking around going, "I just want my dick back." <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, Brandon was like ten inches ahead of me on that one. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, he is, uh, there's, there reaches a point where he steals, uh, his, the family car after the explosion incident. And like the family just decides like we need to get him to talk to, to talk to Whitney. Yeah. Um, the family just decides that they need to get him help. Uh, he ends up in a psychiatric institute. He breaks out, um, of there with the help of Andy Samberg. Um, and, uh, who, while he's in there, he seems like bored and sad and, and away from his friends. Cause all of a sudden he's like, you know, he's confined again. He can't go and live in the world. He misses the world. He misses his friends. He doesn't totally understand why, why he's being locked up just for like fucking going on adventures. Yeah. Really quickly. Greg Kinnear plays the police detective who kind of uh, deals with his like entry back into the world who, uh, does seem more like a social worker as we referenced earlier than like an actual police detective because he's a, a nice um and uh, he literally breaks he the has, law to help him out right like, yeah he's he been stealing stuff <laughs> yeah he's he's been taking the police evidence of all the this brisby bear sets and videotapes and stuff and giving it to him at at james's request and that's important for when he does break out because the family kind of has come around to uh they watch some of the videos that they were making of like the movie and has come around to realizing like oh he he is connecting with us. We're not connecting with him. Yeah, I um yeah, I think that's kind of like that's the connection point finally, right? Like um he has support from the, the police department from his own family and from his friends and they finally realize like yeah, maybe this project is is you know, it's not something we need to quash. This is something that we need to we need to support, and so he finishes the fucking Brigsby Bear movie, and he has a huge premiere. Um, Ariel Smiles is there, um, and uh, the real Brigsby is there. <laughs> oh yeah, we didn't talk he about. He a, does go and yeah, he goes to prison to uh, record dialogue with his dad, and and there's an amazing moment where. Uh, Mark Hamill, uh, who's in uh, expert casting here, um, Mark Hamill is giving this monologue because James is like, I have a question for you. And Mark Hamill gives this monologue where he's assuming the question is going to be about the crime and why they did it. And Mark Hamill's just like, you know, he's he's basically like morally justifying why they did it, but also like making amends. And he's just like, you know, trying to both like remain a father to him. But in the same breath, sure, yeah, probably pro- bothered him. But in the same breath, like yeah, justify his crime. So like clearly, Mark Hamill is still sorting out the fact that he did a terrible, awful fucking thing. Um, and he's just like, and James just doesn't really care about the moral justification of it. Because um, again, like James is beautiful. He, he does see it as new dad and old dad, which he keeps saying throughout. Yeah, the... James is beautifully oblivious, right? Like yeah. this is not a movie of, of him in anxious distress ever. This is not somebody who like sees how cool guys are. And he's like, I want to be like the cool guy. Like this is him being like, yeah, like I, I, I don't even know I'm being weird right now. <laughs> like he just has no, he has no concept of it. It's like it's a beautiful sort of, uh, uh, it's a beautiful sort of uh, uh, unawareness that he has, and he, uh, and he's just like he doesn't care about Mark Hamill's justifications. It's so amazing to have Mark Hamill give a, mo- a, a like a short monologue, and then the main character just go like, 
Yeah, hey, anyways, uh, I need you to do some fucking dialogue. Yeah, that wasn't the question. Can you record some dialogue? Because we can't get the voices right. (laughs) And this is amazing because Mark Hamill is someone who famously, um, after he finished the Star Wars movies, he's mostly doing voiceover work. And he's, like, incredibly famous for doing the voiceover work. Like, he is considered by some to be, like, the um, the best person to ever voice Joker or perform as Joker um yeah he's he's the only person that after getting really into star wars movies or whatever or nerdy shit was like i need to become the joker and it was good <laughs> <laughs> he was the only star yeah star he wars was, fan everyone else joker. posts incel memes but like he just like made a good voice yeah he he um he he does tons of voices voiceover work and he's like very famous for that and like in a way we're like even if you don't know you've heard Mark Hamill, you've heard Mark Hamill. So, I don't like, think I've ever seen him do it before I saw this it's movie. Weird. It's, it's weird. It's I saw him do the Joker. Because um, he's doing a performance. He's not doing a vocal yeah. performance. He's not like one of those guys who like can just kind of like belt out the voice. Like he like he like hunches his shoulders and like does a whole th- he does like a whole like performance bit with his hands and shit. Like he gets really into it. He seems like a good dude. He does seem like a good dude. At a, at a minimum... <laughs> At a minimum, he's someone who's incredibly famous, uh, who decided to use his fame to uh, tell the world how st- how fucking stupid Republicans are for the past <laughs> five years. So, um, at a minimum, he's there, right? Um, I mean, Harrison Ford is hotter, but like Harrison Ford has mostly spent the past five years crashing planes. <laughs> crashing planes, hurting himself. <laughs> crashing planes, that, taking names. If you ask me questions. I'm gonna fucking lose. One thing I quickly want to talk about about uh, as a movie that just resonates on like ten different levels with me personally, and I think is just a really good empathy machine of a movie, as like uh, Roger Ebert would say. Like we, I've talked a little bit about how how James as a character he has a life, and that's why uh, everyone doesn't know how to relate to him is because they assume you've been in a bunker. You've been watching a fake TV show. You've you've lived a fake reality. You've you haven't experienced all the things that we love from our experience, and so you need to experience that. And so, like as as parents specifically, when he meets his you know his actual parents, they don't have bad intentions because they assume that he feels like he's missed out on all these things, uh, and they're trying to give that to him. But from his perspective, he the thing that he's missing out most at that moment is the next Brigsby tape because he spent 25 years of his life uh, having interests and having things he was passionate about and sharing those passions with people. And they're just things that other people in his life don't understand. And so trying to get him interested in basketball or all the different water activities they suggest, um, it's it's a sincere understanding of, oh, you've never been to a lake. You would love the lake. Dad, why do you keep taking him to do water things? <laughs> yeah. Why do you why only fly fishing? <laughs> Deep sea fishing. They just don't recognize his actual interests as legitimate. And that that resonates so much for me as a as a individual who has both uh been a child of parents and someone who has my own kids now because uh even though like my kids are thankfully like some stuff that i also like like steven universe now we're we're really into adventure time right now which is great and they also like shows understandably that or music or stuff like that that i just don't 
uh, give a shit about at all. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Blippy. It's <laughs> the worst thing in the world. Isn't that the it song like, from the Apple that everyone has to by law sing, uh, dance to? That's Bim's no, on the Blippi. way. No, Blippy is this guy who like does a lazy YouTube version of some the the all the worst aspects or worst combination of Mister Rogers and Pee Wee Herman, where it's like. It's a less intentional version of that where he kind of walks around acting goofy and is like, oh, look at this. This is a this is a green pear. Pear starts with the letter P. Oh, weird. <laughs> like, it's not bad. But, like, in the sense that, like, it's not bad for a kid's mental health. It's, like, quasi-educational. But it is, I mean, it's a YouTube thing, right? My, my almost three-year-old's obsessed with it. And you realize how important it is to not go, oh, when you want to watch Steven Universe or Adventure Time or then I'm going to give you good feedback, but instead meet them on the stuff that they like, too, that just is outside of your interest. Like how important that is to let them develop the things that they like and for you to approach that on the terms that they're bringing it to you like i like this music i like this show i love this thing it's the easiest way to connect with children like it's the easiest way to connect with your kids is to be like oh cool show me some of this show or let's talk about this movie or let's talk about this or let yeah let's we're cleaning we're cleaning this room what's what's that band that you like like let's put that on and how like probably a lot of us could relate from a parental standpoint about how that was such an easy miss that a lot of our parents did. And I think that's reflected in this movie um, very well. Um, and you realize how important that is and how how I'm trying to like make sure that I never seem like eye-rolling because my daughter likes the Kid Bops version of a, you know, <laughs> of a Cardi B song or something like that. Um and that I engage with it in the way that she's bringing it to me and how, like, this movie really touches on that. It touches on it in, in, a, in a very specific way because of the way that James has interacted with his pop culture. But it is just, a um, you know, him trying to connect with his parents and his parents, instead of taking that step for most of the movie and going, yeah, tell us about Brigsby Bear because that's what you want to talk about. And that's what you're excited about. And you're wearing the clothes and you're... You're making movies and you're wearing costumes and you're getting the toys and all this stuff. Instead, they're like, yeah, 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 don't, not Brigsby Bear. Uh, let's go play basketball. Let's go go on water sports stuff. And he, they finally start actually making parental connections and, a, and building a relationship when they embrace that and go, yeah, why don't we all work on this as a family? Because clearly you're passionate about. I mean, when I'm thinking about like how the parents interact with him in this movie like they're treating that activity as sort of antisocial and yeah individual like that's something you do in your private time at the end of the day when you're unwinding you watch a 30 minute television show about nice cakes was one of the suggestions <laughs> they gave him to replace brigsby bear yeah um where like they're missing the fact that it, it's an extremely social activity and the reason he loved it in the first place when he was in isolation was because he thought he was communicating with the outside world through it. Yeah. Um, and I think he talks to Mark Hamill in one of the first scenes. He's like, you know, there are other people in the world watching this at the same time that I am. And that means something. Um, and he, he keeps seeking that kind of community, you know, once that bubble is popped. 
Uh, yeah, I don't think I had that as a kid just because, I mean, my parents were really young when I was born and, um, had bigger fish to fry than like watching the X-Men cartoon with me every Saturday. But, uh, yeah, I don't remember mine. At, I'm, I'm the youngest of four. Um, and I think my parents, uh, were over that shit by the time, um, they got to me. Uh, I don't remember my parents ever sitting down and watching a cartoon with me. Um, eventually my mom and I got really into watching, like, uh, when I was, you know, eight to 12, like got into watching Buffy and Angel with me, yeah. but like we'd find shows to find together, but not this, like the, the specific sort of like specifically children's and <laughs> television. Like my parents are mostly just, I think they were too fucking busy or gone to like sit and like engage yeah. on that level. I don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't blame them a lot of fucking kids four kids is a lot yeah if, if if like if you are not engaging with the kids or with the things that your kids are obsessed with which is like how most most uh kids uh the, the way that kids interact with pop culture right like you know my kids would watch Coraline 50 times in you know 50 days or something like that like if you're not interacting with that you're missing a huge part of who they are in those moments. And I think that is really like articulated well. And I imagine it really comes from, you know, where this where this movie gestated from, which is that idea of, you know, these these two that had the they came from these Uber Christian backgrounds that like outlawed all these things. And um they didn't have a way to relate to their parents. And probably if I'm if I'm extrapolating a little bit, probably we're like it would be cool if uh, instead of getting punished for having this like CD or this movie or this comic book or whatever else it is, if my parents were like, oh, tell me about this thing that you love, <laughs> um, and how like never having that really impacts uh, the the relationship that you build with your parents. I think that kind of extends even to like a larger like outside of like parenthood, just the fact that monoculture is sort of dissipating in general, like yeah, water cooler shows and like big movie premieres, maybe outside of like the MCU or something that it's kind of just going away and we don't really meet on the same page. We're kind of like dissecting ourselves into smaller and smaller niches um, with our own pop culture obsessions um i think the movie kind of touches on that too just like the idea that everyone would be watching one thing all at the same time is almost a nostalgic feeling for me like that that feels like a very 1990s concept because it's the last time i remember that being a truth yeah well it also makes sense like the way that he connects with you know his uh his sister's friends and eventually his sister is is the same way right like he, they take an interest in what he has an interest in, and that's how they build a connection, which is, I'm assuming, how a lot of us made some of our friends in elementary school and junior high and high school and now in our 30s or whatever else. Like, I've asked people so many questions about The Mandalorian at my job, a show that I know for a fact that I will never watch, <laughs> uh, just to give them something to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Brandon, I I have a hard time believing that you and Baby Yoda would have nothing in common. I mean, mean, he's very adorable, but I just... He's he's designed in a corporate lab to be adorable. (laughs) I think that's a funny aspect of this, too, is just like, 
this show that this kid is watching is an evil corporate tool, even though the corporation is just two people. But like, okay, like when the cop is unloading the car with the uh, set pieces that that James needs to finish the movie, um, the dad is like, these are tools of sick people that imprisoned my son. Um, and that reminded me a lot of like Disney and Star Wars and stuff like that. Just like the fact that people latch on to the beauty and the art and the creativity of these products that have malicious real world effects at the same time. But people, you know, still find a way to rally around them and build communities around um, these like evil objects. It's especially funny in the context of Star Wars with Mark Hamill, um, as we've seen in recent years, nerds having input and feeling like they can complete stories and they are as important as the creators uh, is a lot less wholesome than it is in this movie where, you know, the fans yeah. finish the story and it's like a triumph. It's it's not like that in real life. Uh, yeah, because like in a we because it, it, it's it's specific too because like fans feel like the show was made or the pro the the property was made specifically for them. In this right. case, James is correct. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Um, so, but like that's how the fans feel like this was made specifically for me. And then as soon as it starts to divert, like you know, Ghostbusters. Uh, oh, this isn't. This isn't made for, um, you know, uh, a child growing up in 1986 anymore. What the fuck? Um, <laughs> like that, that, uh, that sort of shift that inevitably should happen if you have a, a fandom that has been lucky enough to survive long enough, right? Um, that kind of shift does happen. James is basically saying, like, I want to. I want to, you know, continue this because no one else can and no one else cares to. But he also like this isn't Jim saying I want to do more episodes of the show forever. This is James like in without realizing it because he's so beautifully oblivious. Yeah. It's him closing the book on it and finding catharsis through it and like making friends through it. So he's getting all of his growth, but it seems like regression. And like, that's an yeah. interesting thing. Cause like, this is, this is a, uh, this uh, f fandom has proven to be extremely toxic and poisonous, especially weirdly enough since 2016. Like it feels like all of our, yeah, this is a different movie than it was at the time. Culture wars have, have expanded now um, to the point where, like, for some reason, I associate people that don't like Last Jedi with Trumpers, even though that's not true. <laughs> um, like, you can dislike the movie and be a totally, like, sane, normal person, but it's because the culture war has, has put me, my brain in that place. And it's put me in a place where, like, I feel weirdly possessive about that one Star Wars thing. And I felt very angry about Star Wars in 2019 when the last Star Wars movie came out. Like, I'm an adult fucking man. What am I doing being mad about Star Wars? But I was very mad about Star Wars. Like, fandom has gotten so gross to the point where and it's gotten so conflated with everything else in our lives that, like, uh, it feels uh, very strange for this movie to be about that particular topic. Brandon, I, I agree with you. And I think... I and I think if anything, those like J.J. Abrams versions of Star Wars might be doing a little bit of what Aaron was talking about. We're like, okay, the the Last Jedi, right, it does something new with the material and like tries out new things. But the especially the the Force Awakens, like that is reaching out to like a younger generation of kids and like trying to bring them into the fold and make Star Wars more palatable to them. 
I don't even know if I have a yeah, point Yeah, what there, you're saying but... is, like, you need a Brigsby Bear the next generation. <laughs> BBTNG. They need a, a Patrick Stewart to play Nina and Ariel. Yeah, I don't know if I want to see James in five years. Like, is, is James just very obsessed with, you know... Uh, Marvel comics or whatever. Well, they does cut out at the perfect time. Like it cuts out right after the movie premiere. They, you don't even get to see him walk out of the theater. Um, He's just in this moment of beautiful, pure joy, bliss, and 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 triumph. Yeah. The other thing, I mean, that's we touched on it a lot too, but I want to have a little bit more discussion on it. Is and this actually, it was so funny coming off of my favorite movie of 2016 when we did those podcasts which was Pete's Dragon, which is also a movie about like someone who has suffered a trauma and how no one knows how to relate to it because uh, the kid in Pete's Dragon uh, was found, uh, his parents died in a car crash and he's been raised by a dragon and, and, and no one is listening to what he's saying because they don't believe the dragons exist. And, and, and just recognizing that assuming that you understand because of your experience the way that someone else's experience works um, is an incredibly toxic way to approach even even good-natured or good-intended communication or advice or support or whatever else you want to call it. And I, I there's been a few movies in the last few years that I think have really addressed that topic in a way and why, like, this resonated so much in 2017 and resonates even more in 2020 is you just have a lot of people that that think they're doing the right thing whether it's sending him to an asylum or well, asylum is probably not the right word uh or an institute or whatever else to get the help that he needs um or to send him to a psychologist who's not not really listening to him that are really just based on assuming that everything that the person is saying is wrong. And I know what, what uh, I know what this person needs. And the, you know, the, the, one of the hardest parts of this movie, I think to watch where you just are really feeling bad about it is when it feels like the family has never really engaged with him on his terms, the parents. And all of a sudden they decide, well, you know, we've looked for him for 25 years, but he's not really meeting our expectations and he's not really doing what we expected him to do. And he's uh, we're not really having all the joyful moments that we have imagined for 25 years. So I don't know. Let's just send him off again uh, to another place and see if they can fix him and send it back so we can play basketball and go white rider rafting and stuff (laughs) like that. And and I just feel like. That as like a theme that kind of ties the movie together about like you can't define people's existence for them and and you have the only way the only way to truly support people whether it's in terrible situations like you were kidnapped as a baby and kept in a bunker or just like through the day at work or in your home life or whatever else it is is to truly listen and recognize what that person is saying um i think it's just an incredibly important lesson that all of us need to be reminded of constantly because i i don't think that was just ever articulated in the media or the education or our uh, the way that we were raised for the most part i would like to touch on just the idea that andy samberg doesn't need to be here <laughs> that's like <laughs> you know you know if you're gonna like poke one complaint in the film i I think that was like my confusion both when i saw it originally and now like 
I'm sure that helped sell the movie and helped get it made in the first place. Just the fact that he had like a cameo, but everything else is so sincere. I don't understand why Andy Samberg is there. Otherwise, I like Andy Samberg now. Uh, at the time this movie was made, I don't know if I like. I, well, yeah, I did. I guess I, I, I didn't like Andy Samberg in like the early Lonely Island days, and I've like turned around on him in the past four years somehow. So like, it was it was pleasant to see him, and it was cute to see him in this because it felt like uh, this was Andy Samberg like putting his blessing on this like comedy group and their their them trying to get their vision out. I do think that I, I, it's almost worth it for the smash cut, which I think is very funny. Oh, the TV through the window. That's, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. But but he's like a very insincere element, I think, in the film where everyone else is playing it 100% sincere. And I, I don't know. I, I just I really respect this movie as a rumination on pop culture and what it means to people and how it can be significant and it, it can be social. Um, and kind of how we were talking about at the top of the show, like especially over the past year or so, just being like in an enclosed space with only this kind of media to keep us company. <laughs> um, and, you know, literally like a lot of my social activity right now is calling people up on Skype and Zoom once a week to record a podcast about three movies that, you know, only we watched because one of us picked it as a as a podcast topic, you know, like that is my social life right now. And it, it does mean something significant. It's not just um, us playing around. And I, I think this movie touches on that in a very like sincere heartfelt way. And it gets me every time. I always am surprised by how emotional it can make me when oh, it is, you know, on, on the surface, very artificial and very goofy in its concept. Yeah. That um, we, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but that point where he breaks out of the asylum um, and goes back and, and catches basically all of his family and his friends. Uh, it's a couple weeks after he, he was sent there. It's not like the next night everyone's like, oh, whoopsie daisies. But you realize off screen and you see little moments of them like watching him making the videos with his sisters and his sister's friends that like, oh, he, he didn't need the fixing that we thought that he needed. And so how about we just support him? And that act of a family and friends and a community supporting someone is a moment that gets me every fucking time I see this movie in the same way that like when at the end of this movie, when everyone's watching the movie um, or the Brigsby bear uh, film that he made with his friends sold out uh, and everyone is just like, I think finally under like appreciating what, what they're watching as like a pop culture artifact or a, a movie just outsider also, art <laughs> yeah but also like just recognizing like oh this person is putting themselves into it and they're sharing who they are as a person through um you know peter to your point it it almost has the subtext of a movie that we talked about last which was black christmas 2019 like the subtext is text it's not trying to be too many it's trying to be very clear what it represents. This is a case where the Brixby Bear movie very clearly represents uh, James's um, the scariness and acceptance of leaving everything you know behind and accepting a new beginning and uh, how that is a the end, the question mark moment. But just the way that everyone is like truly charmed by everything while he goes through an existential crisis wondering if people will love the thing that he's put out in the world. I mean... 
how can you not be overwhelmed at the end of of that moment? Like it's so perfectly directed and played, and the movie clips are so perfect. Like God, yeah, it's it is an overwhelming movie in a very unexpected way. Definitely, definitely agree. Um, do we have anything else to to share before we close out? Because I feel like I feel like uh, we we got there, right? No, I think that's it for me. Yeah, <laughs> same. Uh, yeah, so this is uh, next week. Uh, we have uh, The Hunt for the Wilder People. Uh, also uh, from 2016, like Pete's Dragon that we talked about. Uh, and that is with guest Lydia Lamalley. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Brandon. This was so much fun. And we have. Oh, to have uh, Brandon, do you want to promote some yeah, stuff? Do you want to promote something? Oh, sure. I have a podcast, too. It's, it's called the Swamp Flicks Podcast. <laughs> Uh, An excellent podcast. Thank you very much. Can you say that like a Steve Brule voice where you're like, uh, I'm a doctor too. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. <laughs> I went to med school, you know. Uh, I we I, I do think it's pretty similar to this show in some ways. We, we watch a lot of genre movies. We try not to do that all the time just because you can't eat candy every day of the week. Um, we have themed episodes where basically the hosts alternate picking a topic and we each pick a movie a piece and sort of tackle that topic as a group. I'm thinking like in the last year, what are some like recent stuff we've done? Um, killer elevator movies. Uh, we did an episode on Madonna's erotic thriller era. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, we did an episode on metal exploitation. Um, David Arquette's pro wrestling career. Just, you know, whatever topic strikes our fancy as we're scrambling to decide what to watch next week. Yeah, if you have a if you have a, a, a wrestling thing, neither Aaron and I have that. So you can get your fix over at Swamp Flicks. I described it to people that I've recommended to as like, hey, if you like We Live to Watch, it's basically like they do our month shrink down an episode by episode basis. And they're like, we can get it shorter? <laughs> yeah. I will say it's less funny. I think y'all are much better at zingers and bits um than we are. But uh <laughs> the nerd energy is there. Uh I I'd like to think we have the same look, enthusiasm. You just don't have a full look, here's all you gotta do. You gotta take some historical tragedy and just make it a bit that you never that you run into the ground. Like, for example, <laughs> like let's say some uh actor died under suspicious circumstances uh, <laughs> on a boat just never stop talking about it ever yeah but like um, you can't have our specific one um because yeah it's you gotta find out like uh like james dean yeah we haven't done james dean we, we haven't mentioned him maybe make a thing about that i can't focus on jay leno or uh tim allen's cocaine addictions in the 80s i have to find my own hack comic from the era <laughs> oh yeah there's so many oh, hack you comments. Andrew Dice like, clay. <laughs> yeah you can do andrew dice clay we haven't called him yet um and i do hope wink wink that you guys like uh our jay leno take uh, <laughs> because we may have something special wink wink coming up for that at some point yeah you wink. could say we're on a <laughs> I can't do it. Um, yes, thank you very Crash much. Crash course. <laughs> yes, yes, We're yeah. gonna smash into some things. Uh, thank you very much, Brandon. This is so much fun. Yeah, thank you all for having me back. Especially so seeing it was it was so nice to talk to y'all in like a couple weeks time. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was great. Yeah, we'll see you in 2022 when we remember to book you again. <laughs> that sounds about uh. right. <laughs> <laughs> 
good night. Good night. <laughs> Sorry. Everyone. Yeah, I was like rounding up for something. No, my, we can go. Um, yeah. yeah um, <laughs> everything is huge. Good night. We're safer now, but I let the whole galaxy down. I don't get it. The prophecy said if we activate the Sordis crystal inside the temple, we could destroy Sun Snatcher. Perhaps there's a lesson here, Brixby. When solving for X on a one-dimensional plane where minus one by the magnitude of one equals minus X, always solve for vector R. Until our next adventure, remember, prophecy is meaningless. Trust only your familial unit. And please, discard leftover food rations in the yellow bin, not the red one. Goodbye! Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. <laughs> Mm. 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 <laughs> <laughs>